If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome to the Calling History Podcast. Welcome back to part two of Jane Austen. In the last episode, Jane explained why her brilliant works had to be written anonymously, why she didn't marry the awkward, big, and impolite, yet rich Harris Bigweather, and how the Prince Regent politely demanded that her books be dedicated to him. In this episode, though, she's going to clarify whether her characters start as kind and then become wicked, or vice versa. We'll talk about her aunt, the wealthy shoplifter, and one of her characters that some call a sexual predator. It is so scandalous. Why do you think people love your work so much? I've always said that I write plain, simple, unpretentious stories. I proclaim frequently that I could not sit down seriously to write a serious romance without relaxing into laughing at myself or other people. But perhaps I've been finding from reviews recently, particularly of Mansfield Park, that people seem to appreciate that I'm writing about the world that we see around us and daily life and that I'm not writing grand adventures in far-flung lands or far-flung times. And perhaps there is an appetite for the small piece of ivory on which I work with such a tiny brush that really... Uh, I can't do much of any great scale, but I do think I've observed the world closely and thought a great deal about what I've seen, and perhaps people enjoy being able to sit back and relax and laugh at themselves and other people too. This is one of the things that people do say when they speak about your writing, is that a lot of the people of your time are writing maybe the way things look on the outside, where you're writing about what is really happening. People, when they read your writing now across the world, they say that they read it and they feel like they're reading about somebody that they know, which leads me to believe that maybe people are more similar than we think they are, even though they appear very different on the outside. And they just feel like it's so real. Are authors in your time not writing that way? I think it's true a bit. I mean, that's so heartening to hear. It's really lovely. But I do think that there is a tendency... In the novels that perhaps Cassandra, my niece Anna, and I are wont to mock, there's a tendency to create these heroines and heroes who embody impossible ideals. I have enormous admiration for Sir Walter Scott, but the heroines in his books are impossibly perfect and good and sweet and self-effacing. And even the heroines in, in, in some of Mrs. Edgeworth's novels, and they're all, it's, there is a tendency to think that novels ought to show readers the ideal to which they should try to live up. But I think it's interesting to see what real people are like. And honestly, I do prefer to, to read about and spend time with people who are not perfect. They're much more interesting. It's imperfections that, that make people so intriguing and that create stories. Really, it's very difficult to have much incident if all of the characters are absolutely perfect and do what they ought to do at all times. This is a word that I was expecting to hear from you over and over today, and I've now heard it many times, and it is that word perfect. And 
In your society, it seems that everybody is trying to have perfect manners all the time. Nobody's trying to offend anybody. There's certainly subcontext where they're saying things that are offensive, but nobody's trying to be offensive. Nobody's trying to negatively affect somebody's reputation. Is that this attempt to look and be and act and appear perfect exists, and yet nobody is perfect. Underneath our facade, we're all a mess in one way or the other, at least at some point in our lives. And Oh, absolutely. What, so when you write a character, do you sometimes find that you're, you're writing the character and they have too many perfections, and so you change them to make something broken about them? I think of Mr. Darcy. Your first version of Mr. Darcy, was he smiling all the time and happy and loved to dance? And then you started building imperfections. What does that look like when you write? Honestly, I think it may actually go more the opposite direction in that I tend to write quite wicked and rather sprightly and even, I've been told, a little bit too brash characters. And sometimes I do have to tone them down a little bit. There were many versions of Pride and Prejudice that started out I was writing it when I was about Elizabeth Bennett's age, actually, in the 1790s, and at the time it was called First Impressions. But once again, like with Susan, another novel called First Impressions was published before I got it to a publisher. So it was eventually published as Pride and Prejudice. But, you know, I'm thinking specifically in Sense and Sensibility, there, there are a couple of jokes that appear in the first edition that I took out before the second, because I discovered that people found the brashness of the novel a little indelicate and that it was distressing to some people. I'm thinking particularly there was something that was mentioned at a party at Lady Middleton's. She said something about someone's natural daughter. And I'm afraid I had the narrator say something rather snarky about wanting to avoid talking about a natural child being the only thing that would make Lady Middleton exert herself to talk about the weather. And I took that out for the second edition because I found that sort of honesty was rubbing readers the wrong way. So I think I really have had to to add some layers of polish to my books over the years as they've been edited. Of course, Sense and Sensibility probably changed the most in that when I started writing it as Eleanor and Marianne back as a young girl in the 1790s, it was actually all in letters. And the problem with that was that although I did enjoy having Eleanor and Marianne reporting to each other about what was going on in their lives, it meant that they had to be separate for much of the novel. So when I reworked it before its publication in 18 and 11, I changed it so that there was an outside narrator and Eleanor and Marianne could have shared experiences. But along with that editing was some making it a little nicer and a little more well-pruned for more fastidious readers, I suppose. So do you have some sort of guide that you use to make an interpretation of if you've gone too far? Do you listen to the audience? Can you just hear it and you're writing something and you hear in your head, you hear somebody think, why, I never, you know what I mean? They just like, they have this huge reaction <laughs> and you think, okay, maybe I've gone too far. Or do you listen to the audience? How do you guide that? A little of both. I'm very lucky. When I was a young girl writing sort of the three volumes of my early works, that were all very silly but great fun, I used to read all of those aloud to my family in Steventon. And as an adult, I'm less prone to reading my mature work aloud to my family at large. But I do always have Cassandra read my books before I, I send them to publication. And she does give me feedback. I have been known to also, on occasion, have my mother read them and have Henry read them. So I do get feedback from my family, and between Mama, Cassandra, and Henry, 
there is quite a difference of taste and interest. So it is rather a good overview of how people are likely to react. It doesn't always go well. I mean, certainly just because it's happened recently and is on my mind with Mansfield Park, my mother did not like Fanny at all. She thought she was much too much of a, a milksop, which I disagreed with. I think she was misreading her. Cassandra very strongly felt that I should have had Fanny marry Henry Crawford rather than having her marry Edmund. And it's one of the few times that Cassandra and I have had a strong disagreement and she held firm throughout the book. Henry thought the whole thing was very interesting, so he was very positive about it. But I do get some readers to look at the book before I send it out in the world. And then although I don't listen to all of the reviews, I do on occasion listen to what's said about my work and allow that to influence where I may go next, perhaps. So when you were talking about Cassandra, is she capable of changing the direction of your writing? She's certainly capable of voicing her opinion. Once the characters are fully formed in my head, they rather take on a life of my own. My niece Fanny actually used to laugh at me because I would be sitting by the fire when I visited her family at Godmersham, sewing away quite quietly like a normal, rational spinster aunt. And all of a sudden I would burst out laughing, run over to the desk, and write very quickly down the scene or the moment or interaction that had occurred to me in my head. And then I would go back to sitting and sewing very quietly and very sedately. And I do think I, that's, I rather write with these sort of bursts of inspiration. Although in general, when I'm writing at home in Chawton, I try to avoid anyone noticing that I'm writing who's outside of the family. I, do, I tend to sit in the dining room parlor by the window. The light's very good there. And I write on very small pieces of paper so that if I hear the outside door creak and know that someone is coming, I can cover it up with a sheet of blotting paper <laughs> and appear to be writing a letter or something different so no one knows that I'm at work on one of my tales. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. You know, I'm laughing because I've written, I've written a couple books and I've published mm. a couple as well. And uh, the recent one that I, uh, there's one that I've recently published just over the last two years. It's called Michelangelo's Secret. As you describe your process and you're writing on these little notes, I mean, I have these little notes all over the place. You have this little moment of brilliance. You're like, oh my gosh, I got to write that. You don't even know where it comes from. That's the way I feel. And absolutely. And as I think about the different things that I've written, there are moments where I write something where I think, wow, like, I don't even know where that came from that I really like the way that sounded. And are there parts of your books or essays that you've written, some of the short stories that you've written that really stand out where you think that was really extraordinary? I mean, it just you just cannot forget it. I think there are some conversations, particularly in, in Pride and Prejudice, I would say, that are moments of which I'm very proud. I think really because I grew up so much to a certain extent in the theatre, performing in the Stevenson theatricals. And even at my, at one point, I, I attempted adapting one of Samuel Richardson's novels for the stage and go to the theatre so much. I think really dialogue is one of the things at which I'm the strongest. And that's something of which I'm quite proud. And there are certainly moments when characters will begin talking to each other and I don't think that I really have control anymore over what they're saying. Particularly someone like Lady Catherine de Bourgh will just go off on her own. And I, I have no ability to restrain her. Um, <laughs> so which is really quite fun, I must admit. Yes. Yeah. Okay, good. So let's talk about comedy for a minute. People refer to you in our time as hilarious. Like oh. that you understand comedy in in a way that that people don't they don't use in writing in your time and so it brings me to the very first line because i think this was an attempt at comedy although it's also serious the very first line in pride and prejudice where you said it is a truth universally acknowledged 
that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a good wife? Mm, absolutely. Now, is that, are you meaning to be funny there? Oh, of course. I'm almost never serious. It's very rare that anyone will catch me saying something that I absolutely mean. Honestly, I know that Pride and Prejudice is really rather too light and bright and sparkling to be truly popular to my current readers. It wants to be stretched here and there with, so with some serious chapters of sense if they could be had, or if not, as some solemn, specious nonsense. But I think, it, it, as you say, it's not an inaccurate statement, and it is the duty of a gentleman with a large fortune to take on a wife and to be able to support a young lady and hopefully her family. But also the idea that when any poor landed gentleman arrives in a new neighborhood, every mama pounces upon him for his daughters, her daughters is really, it's rather unfortunate. So talk to me a little bit about the printing process. You had mentioned a little bit ago, and we got sidetracked on so many, everything you say is interesting to me, so forgive me, but <laughs> I am kind of curious what the printing process looks like now. Because in our time, they put your information in a machine, it spits out 100,000 copies, and that's it. I mean, there's just nothing to it. But in your time, that's not the case. Did you make your own ink or paper? What does that process look like for you? Well, if we're going from the very start, I do indeed actually have a recipe to make my own ink. And that's something that, that Cassandra and Martha and I do ourselves. In we have a big household receipt book that has all kinds of medicines and food. And we do also have in that book a receipt for creating ink. So we do that out of, of various sort of berries and other household items. Really the most expensive thing at that point in the process, and even for publication, is the paper. You get these large sheets for publication that are then folded down into little quarto or other size volumes. So you start with these huge sheets of paper, and once I've written it and sent it off to the publisher, he actually separates the novel up into different chunks so that different printers can be working on different sections because otherwise it would be such a never-endingly long process because they have to set all of the type. They have little individual letters that they have to fit into this form to make each page. And then that's covered with ink by a large sort of pillow, I suppose, for lack of a better description, that's covered in leather and it has a wooden handle. And you just cover that in ink. You pound that all over these typeset letters to cover that sheet in ink. And then you press it down onto the paper so that it makes an imprint. I gather that one is in the works that will, in fact, be mechanized. But at present, it's all human strength that's doing this. The difficulty with that is that when the person presses the paper down on the ink-covered words, he, it's not an exact science. And so sometimes it slips and, and letters are fudged or other things happen. And also, it's very easy to make mistakes when setting the type. I was very upset with the first edition of Pride and Prejudice when it arrived, that they had taken two speeches that I meant to be separate, and they had turned them in, into one long speech because the way that the type was set on the page. And I know, I'm, I'm, Cassandra tells me I'm too much of a perfectionist, but I was quite distressed by that. But so it's a very lengthy process, and they have to repeat this for each page in each copy of the book that they're printing out. So really, although I was always anxious and I was always writing to the publishers asking them to hurry up, the undertaking of 750 books done in that way took a very long time. It sounds like an awful job setting all these letters for each page. I think it really has to be a labor of love. You have to really want to get literature out in the world because otherwise it's also very difficult in your eyes because they're quite small. And you, you have all of them, hopefully, if you're a very well-organized printer, you have a big case with drawers and each letter 
lowercase and capital, are in their individual drawers. You always pull out the right one to set the type. But it, it is a very lengthy undertaking and does take a lot of strength, actually. And you have, but you didn't do that, though. You're aware of the process, but you didn't do that. Is that correct? I did not. And I really wasn't much involved with the publishers up until Emma. With Mr. Edgerton, Henry was always my go-between. And even getting my first book to Mr. Crosby, that was largely my father with some help from Henry in London. Emma's the first time, because Henry's not been terribly well, as I mentioned, I've been sort of looking after him while he's been ill, that I actually wrote to Mr. Murray and asked to speak to him in person. But still, I did not go to his office. That would not be a terribly nice thing for a lady to do. So Mr. Murray very kindly has been here to, to Henry's home on a couple of occasions to talk with me about the book and the process. He actually wanted to buy the copyright of several of my previous novels, but did not offer me enough for that to seem enticing at this moment. So perhaps if he wants to do other editions of Sense and Sensibility and Pride and Prejudice later, that will be a conversation. Some people have said that your books are like a sermon about how you would like the world to be and that you're not just writing to entertain yourself or just writing to make money, but you're actually writing to give people uh, a clearer picture of maybe the way things are right now are not the way that they should be. What would you say oh, dear, about Well, I'm not sure I... The idea of writing a novel that's rather like a sermon does not necessarily appeal to me, I must admit. Having several clergymen, brothers and cousins, I can't say that I'm always an admirer of lengthy sermons. In fact, I was very irked that before I ever got a novel published, my cousin Edward had gotten a book of sermons published. And I thought they were all very pompous. But that aside, I suppose there is something in my books of the way I would like the world to be. Certainly, I've been known to caution young ladies that if a woman have the misfortune of knowing anything, she could conceal it as well as she can. Because we do live in a world where ladies are supposed, if they want to find good husbands, to sit quietly and look pretty. And I do hope perhaps that through my books, some people may see that ladies can have minds of their own and can use them quite effectively. So in that way, I suppose I may be looking to a world that I would like to see rather than one as it is. But I would certainly never undertake to preach to anyone. My brother James also writes very long sermons. To this day, my mother thinks that James is a literary member of our family, that he's a much better writer than I, largely because of his verses, but also because of his sermons. And as you probably remember in Pride and Prejudice, I make great fun of Fordyce's sermons. But I think perhaps humor is a more effective tool for change, I might say, than lecturing. I, at least I hope so. I think you make fun of most people, and in the best way. It's so much fun. It's so sarcastic, and it's, it has to be so fresh in your time. When people read that, they have to be just, they don't even know it, how to react, I'm guessing. No, people do often find me somewhat off-putting, I must admit. But I don't really talk very much in company. I'm actually, surprisingly enough, I'm quite shy in large groups of people. I'm very lively in front of my family and very much enjoy performing around people I know, but... In large groups, I tend to become silent and taciturn, and I just observe what's going on around me. Every writer is going to get reviews that somebody doesn't like the book or it's inappropriate. I'm guessing you had to have reviews that some of your books were inappropriate. And how do you deal with bad reviews? or Is that something you experience? Well, I suppose perhaps that's a case in which I'm a little bit too cocky. Several people did review Pride and Prejudice and say that Elizabeth Bennett was too pert, 
and sprightly and that she spoke her mind too much and was a very unattractive character. But I persist in saying that she is delightful and I created a heroine I thoroughly enjoy and I would not alter her for anyone. I think she's true and I think she's real and I think she's charming. So I really, I can't say that I have taken criticism terribly well to heart. Perhaps I just find it all too funny. If people are going to be upset by something as ludicrous as a novel written by a country clergyman's daughter, then really, they need to find something else to do with their time. It's good advice. People do get very wound up about things that don't matter all the time. I mean, it's not like you're writing a documentary about something that happened. It's a story. And if I'm not no, writing laws or anything very serious. It's just a novel. If you enjoy it, that's splendid. And if you don't, then you needn't pick it up. Right. We don't have to put anybody in prison over it. I mean, you just don't read it. Yeah, exactly. So what is the what is the political situation in your time right now? Oh, well, it's quite complicated. I will say that essentially, since I was about 13, I was a very young woman, England has been engaged in some way or other in the Napoleonic Wars. And only just this year at the Battle of Waterloo in August, Napoleon hopefully finally was defeated. We said this before after Trafalgar when he was sent to Elba, but now he has been exiled to St. Helena. And so I'm rather hoping that we will be at peace for a little while. I know my naval brothers have mixed feelings about that. I think they rather like the excitement of being in battle, but I would very much prefer for them to be at home, and I'm sure that their wives would agree with me. It's rather lovely, actually. Yes, Frank and his wife have settled just up the street in Alton recently. So at least we're not dealing as we were with war across the sea. Of course, when I was born in 1775, and so you probably know that the colonists had just rebelled. So really, there's been a lot of violence throughout my life, but fortunately not on our own soil. And at home now, essentially, we're in difficulties about a number of things. I mean, the Prince Regent is still ruling for his father, who's unfortunately in ill health of an ill-defined nature. And there are a number of things that are at the forefront of the public consciousness. Not least recently, in 1807, you may be aware that Parliament finally outlawed the slave trade. So although slavery is still occurring in British colonies, the slave trade has indeed been outlawed. And actually, for a time after 1807, my brother Frank was part of one of the naval squadrons that was patrolling the waters between Africa and the West Indies and America to ensure that, that no slave ships were trying to smuggle any humans through, which was a very traumatic experience for Frank. And he's talked a little bit about it, but is not terribly keen on describing what he saw on some of the ships he boarded. So really, we're coming to a time of peace abroad, but I would say that things are growing contentious at home. There are also still difficulties from the Napoleonic Wars in that some of the laws regarding trade and taxation made life very difficult in rural England. And although where we live in Chorton is really like, quite quiet and quite peaceful, we do hear rumblings about revolts and concerns Especially in the north, there's increasing concern about factories and the new machinery taking jobs away from the men who work there. So I, I hope for quiet, but we do hear lots of rumblings of unrest. Let's talk about Bath for a minute. I went mm. to Bath, and it was one of, when I traveled overseas, it was one of the very first places that I visited. And when I entered Bath, I felt like I was home. I thought that it was the most peaceful, wonderful, quaint. I just absolutely loved it. 
And it doesn't appear that you had a similar experience when you moved to Bath. Is that correct? I must admit that peaceful, quiet, and quaint are never words I would apply to Bath. During the time that I spent there, it was a very fashionable spa town and was actually called by more than one person to be a center of sin and vice. And so it seems I had a very different experience than you did. I mean, I'm honestly, all of these lovely white stone buildings, the beautiful Purbeck marble, yes, perhaps they look very nice. But the hot weather in the summer months with the sun reflecting off of them keeps one in a continual state of inelegance. But certainly, life was never dull in Bath. I lived there at, at several points in my life for the longest time right after my father retired. And there's certainly always something to do. One can go and take the baths, which is a very intriguing process. Ladies and gentlemen did use the baths together, but we would wear canvas gowns that were very decorous. We still wore our bonnets. And you had a little tray in front of you on which you could carry your handkerchief and other things you might need as you float about in the baths. And you could go to the pump room and take the waters. Although I must admit, I think they taste rather like rotten eggs. My mother swears by them. I'm not terribly keen. <laughs> but there are frequent assembly balls, which are always entertaining up at the assembly rooms. Those are often a good time, although once in a while it's too much of a crush of people and, and does get rather hot and, and chaotic. But there's certainly always something to do in Bath, that I will admit. I did not get much writing done when I was there, simply because there was too much going on. It's too much of a whirl and chaos. That was a time where you did not get much writing done at all, because you were going to balls and you were dancing and there was something to do at all times. And you had said a little bit earlier, you were talking about had I married, there would have been a lot to do then because you would have been taking care of the house and having children. And when you originally said that, had I married, maybe these books wouldn't have been written. I thought, no, that's not true because a writer writes. And yet the moment you went to Bath and there's too much to do, you actually didn't get a lot of writing done. It's true, and your point about taking care of the house is also well taken, and that part of the issue in Bath was that my mother was in declining health when we were living there, and my father did pass away while we lived there. So his health was not the strongest, and so a lot of my time in Bath, when I wasn't gadding about and being a very frivolous young lady, a lot of my time was spent looking after my parents. So really, my time was spoken for, and at the end of the day, when I might have been able to sit down and find a moment for myself, candles by which to write were much too expensive. So, and we were trying to retrench. We had great difficulties in finding suitable lodgings in Bath. They were either too expensive or they were too damp or they were too small. Well, we ended up at number four Sydney Place, which was quite nice there near Sydney Gardens and the Labyrinth. But our final house in Trim Street really was not at all a healthy, salubrious situation. So we were also struggling with difficulties throughout our time there, trying to make my father's retirement happy, but it was not a simple time. Also, I'm afraid, I really ought to talk about this, but it was rather funny. While we were in Bath, my aunt Lee Parrott, who was married to my mother's brother, she actually was arrested for shoplifting, which caused a great deal of drama in the family. She had gone one day to Miss Gregory's millinery in Bond Street and had purchased some black lace. And as she was leaving, Miss Gregory came running out after her and said she had taken some white as well, and she protested that she had not. But when the parcel was opened, it was found that there was white lace with the black lace in the parcel. And my aunt insisted and was acquitted, saying that the shop assistant had put it in there by mistake. But I'm really not sure that they had, because it's not the only time that my aunt has accidentally been in a shop and picked something up and put it in her basket without paying for it. It was quite a lot of drama. Scandalous. 
It was indeed very scandalous. She was actually committed to Ilchester Jail for several months while awaiting her trial. Her husband moved in with her, and because they had a decent amount of money, they were able to purchase nicer apartments in the jail. But I was rather horrified because my mother actually suggested that either Cassandra and I should stay in the jail to look after them, and fortunately my aunt said absolutely not, because I had no intention of spending my days in Ilchester Jail. So this aunt that you're talking about, and I think I know who you're talking about, she wasn't a poor woman, was she? Not at all. I mean, at this point, they had not yet received the family inheritance from Mary Lee, which was to set them up at the end of their life at Stonely Abbey. But they still were very well off. And I can only think that my aunt's penchant for picking things up in shops is simply that she's bored. I can't think of anything else, but I do know that, unfortunately, even her legal counsel, who did get her acquitted, were quite sure that she was guilty. It really was, as you say, quite scandalous. This might be the beginnings of one of your next novels. You have a rich woman that is bored, that steals things to add a little bit of excitement to her life because she's bored with everything else. You never know. It even sounds almost too far-fetched for one of my books, but then so do many of my stories. Certainly Eliza as a heroine is, is too far-fetched for any novels I've ever written, but all of her adventures did happen to her. Very interesting. I love Eliza. So <laughs> you had mentioned that you lived in Sydney Gardens when you were in Bath, and you were on Trim Street. These were two very different types of residences. Sydney Gardens was this beautiful place, and Trim Street was awful. Can you explain what the difference was? Yes, yeah, so Sydney Gardens, although it was not in the center of the city, it was, as you say, it was across the street from the Sydney Public Gardens, where the labyrinth were, which some people referred to actually as the Vauxhall of Bath. And it was rather difficult adjustment for Cassandra and I because we moved to Bath straight from our country home in Steventon where we could ramble about the countryside at will. And to enter Sydney Gardens, you did have to pay a certain amount of money. I believe it was, I think it was sixpence at the time. So it was lovely to be there, but it was a pleasure garden and you had to pay to get in. But it did mean that area was quite fashionable. Whereas Trin Street was more in the low part of the town, that was not as healthy, not as salubrious, and was quite damp. We actually had rejected lodgings. When we first moved to Bath, we had, my mother had said she refused to move to Trim Street. But it was after my father's death, when our income shrunk shockingly, that we had to move. And it was shortly thereafter that our brothers sort of stepped in and saved the day, and we ended up moving to Southampton to live with Frank's wife, Mary. But yes, that was one of the results of three single ladies living with their husband and father versus three single ladies trying to keep a roof over their head on their own. You had used the phrase that when you were looking at places to live that some of them were too damp. I mean, these homes have roofs, don't they? I mean, what do you mean by too damp? They do, but some of them being by the river. And because since you've mentioned you visited, you probably know that Bath is sort of in a little valley and it's mm -hmm. surrounded by hills. So fog does like to rather move into Bath and settle. And that, on top of how overcrowded it is, and the river running through it, does mean that at times areas down near the river that are not well ventilated can become quite unhealthy. And I'm afraid it was one of those fogs that did for my poor father when he passed away of a dreadful fever, although it was mercifully quick. The atmosphere in some parts of town was not as healthy as others. I see. I want to ask you about your father passing away, which is a terrible thing to discuss because I know you're close. I need to ask you about something ridiculous first, and mm. so forgive me. 
I have, like, as writers do, as we discussed earlier, I have all these little notes of everything that we've been discussing. And one thing that you said a while back ago, and I keep wanting to get back to it, and I keep not getting there, you had said, I had the keys to the sugar. And you were talking about your responsibilities at the, at the beginning of the day in the household. Did you actually have keys to the sugar, or you were speaking metaphorically? Oh, absolutely. Sugar is very dear because it is still imported from the colonies and it's actually quite a, a divisive topic at the moment. But it's quite expensive and sugar and tea, both of which are imported, and wine were all kept up under lock and key. So that's my one pretension to being an actual proper housekeeper is my little chatelaine with my keys to the tea and the sugar and the wine. The wine's not quite as dear because we can make some on our own from various sundry fruits and things, but the tea and sugar are certainly very delicate items. I'm surprised that there, to hear that there is actually a key to the sugar and the tea. Is there anything else locked in there besides those? Those are the main two, yes. The tea and the sugar are in their little tea caddy. And the sugar's always, you've probably seen in the little sort of triangle that it comes in. It's wrapped up in blue paper to keep it nice and to keep it from getting moldy or damp. And yes, the tea and the sugar are locked up very carefully. Okay. Let's talk about your father. Such an interesting man. Such a decent human being. The way that he managed the girls, your sisters, in the household, it seems like he's father of the century to me. I mean, he just seems like an extraordinary man. Just before you're leaving Bath, he passes along, and your life is turned upside down at that point. At least that's what it sounds like. So your brothers jumped in right away to help, but you didn't stay much longer in Bath. What was that time like? It really, I mean, to be quite honest, it was rather frightening. Because we had absolutely no idea how we were going to live. You know, as I mentioned, my mother and Cassandra both had these small legacies from earlier in their life. But all of my father's tithes and things were cut off. So we just did not know. And Cassandra and I really thought, as the two spinster sisters, that we might be facing a future of simply traveling and being constant house guests and essentially being the unpaid nursery maids in one brother's house and then in another brother's house. And that first summer, we did get passed from relative to relative. We stayed with an uncle, we stayed with a cousin, we stayed with Edward. But you may have noticed that a great focus of many of my novels is almost less women trying to find a husband than women trying to find a home. And that really was the fear in that year after my father passed was, will we ever find a home? Southampton worked quite well for a while. But it was a lot of personalities. I mean, my mother, Cassandra, and I, I mean, Cassie and I always get on well. My mother and I get on well when she's not fancying herself ill. And our friend Martha, who lived with us, is lovely. But poor Frank's wife, Mary, had never met any of us before we were all suddenly living together. Five women in a house with only, I think it was three, three beds. Cassie and I were sharing. It was a very small space. So really, finally, the recent gift from my brother Edward of this lovely commodious six-bedroom cottage on his estate in Chawton has been a great boon because we finally feel settled and that we have a forever home where we're able to be ourselves and we're not just the spinster sister hanging on and requiring to be looked after, that we have our own space and that we can look after it ourselves. And having that minute degree of independence is really a very lucky thing for women like us. Earlier when I asked you the question if your books were a sermon in a way of how you wish things were, I'm going to come back to that for a minute because I didn't really understand what that person was saying when I read that review of one of your books. And mm. yet when you speak right now, it is 
very clear because it seems like during this time, and you write so much about this, that women are literally living their lives in fear that if the man that supports their household suddenly disappears and everything is not in line, everybody you're not married to the right person or whatever, that in a second you're on the streets. And your books seem to address that over and over, that maybe that isn't the way that things should be. And so if you were going to change that, what would you change? It's so difficult. It would take such an overhaul of not only social custom, but the complete legal system in the country. I mean, it's very difficult for women, for one thing, to own any property of their own unless they are a widow. But even at that point, as of my mother, part of the problem is that so many homes and spaces in which one lives are attached to a job. So, for instance, the rectory at Steventon where I grew up and that I was so upset to leave when my father retired. My brother James became the rector at Steventon Church at St. Nicholas. And so my mother, Cassandra, my father and I had to leave our home in which we'd lived for 25 years. And it's simply because the beautiful house, though it had been ours for a quarter of a century, belonged to the job and not to the person. It's a difficult thing, or even for, had I married Harris Bigwither, once he and his new wife inherited Minnie Down Park when his father died, his mother had to leave the house and had to move to Winchester. So it, it is an odd thing that, that somehow when the man who owns the house dies, that generation is essentially pushed out of the way. The women who are left, literally in some legal documents, widows are referred to as relics. They're no longer really people. They're actually called the relic of Mr. Big Wither is how she might have been referred. And so once the man is gone, the next generation moves in and the ladies who are left have to make do as best they can. So until it's more acceptable for ladies to be able to go out and earn a living and get jobs themselves, which I find very difficult to imagine, it's going to be an uphill battle. It's almost like women in your time, they're like, like a tenant in a property, but they're a tenant in a life. And then once something changes in the life, then they're evicted from the life that they were living. Should women be able to own property? I absolutely think so. And actually, that's very well put. I've not thought of it that way, being a tenant in a life, but it's very apt. And there is some precedent for it. It just happens so rarely. Chawton House, which is one of the homes that my brother Edward inherited from the Knights, had actually, before Sir Thomas Knight, who gave it to Edward, had it, had been owned by a woman simply because her father had been enlightened enough that he had changed his will so that the house would go to his only daughter. And she actually ran the house very well and made some marvellous improvements. So there is some precedent it can happen. But it happens so rarely, and it happens for very wealthy, upper-class women. And that's one thing that I do come back to in my novels over and over again, is that Emma Woodhouse says, flat out, I have none of the usual inducements to marry. She says, I have an active mind with a great many independent resources. I'm already the mistress of my father's house. So because she is a wealthy woman who has prospects, actually being a spinster need hold no fear for Emma, even though she does end up marrying Mr. Knightley. But in that novel, her counterpoint is Miss Bates, who probably was in the class that, you know, Cassandra, my mother and I are in. But, you know, when her mother, Mrs. Bates, and her father died, every year they became poorer. And so now Mrs. Bates, Miss Bates, and even Jane Fairfax, when she's staying with them, are sort of laughing stocks because they were genteel. 
and they've now come down in the world, but it's through no fault of their own. It's simply through them having no means of earning money, which is why Jane may have to go out and become a governess, although she is rescued with a question mark from that fate by Frank Churchill. I'm not sure he's a better option, but... You've said the term spinster over and over. It is interesting how to think of the women of your time, how much they might accomplish if they did not live their life in fear of being a spinster. And they were just always looking for that situation where they could get some security. They could get, as you said, a home, not just a husband, but a home, a place that they would be safe for the rest of their life. I'm wondering if some of your success and the fact that you were able to do as much as you did with your writing is because even though you weren't married, you had a very close family that you knew that if it came down to it, they would be there for you, and they all supported your writing. Had you not had that family, you may have not had the confidence that you had right now. Does your confidence come from your family? Oh, absolutely. And I think that's very true on a very practical level as well, and that the two times in my life when I was prolific with my writing were living at Steventon in the country when I was secure in my father's household, and then the, the last few years living in Shorten. And had Edward not given us the gift of this cottage rent-free, I don't think I would ever have been able to focus on my writing again. I never could focus in Bath because it felt so transient and there was so much exterior stimulation that kept me constantly distracted. I, I didn't do much writing at all in Southampton because, again, it was a house full of women with lots of competing personalities and my mother constantly fancying herself ill. There was not a moment of quiet. But in Chawton, because, as you say, we have this feeling of security and we're able to have a daily routine where I make breakfast and then Cassandra takes over the work of the household, it's the only way that I could possibly have found time and space to write and have a creative life. And I do think, as you say, that because the Austens, we've always been a literary family. I mean, my father used to read to us from Cooper in the evenings. My mother does, when she's feeling well enough, write verses. And my brother James is, writes sermons and verses. And I think that, that writing and play acting and sharing our thoughts and our work was always a part of my family vocabulary, for lack of a better term, that very much this extraordinary close family of Austins that I'm so grateful to be a part of has made my work possible, absolutely. Let's talk about Chaunton for a minute. So you go to Chaunton, your, your father dies 1805, you leave Bath 1806, and then you're in Southampton for a while, and then you end up with your brother Edward giving you this large, uh, this cottage in Chaunton. And Chaunton is, this is a, you're in the country again at this point. You're not in Bath, in the bustling city of Bath, right? Exactly. We're back to our own dear country in Hampshire, which has made a world of difference, yes. Right. So Chaunton is in the country. You've got space where you can write. You're there for many years after that. And now during this time, from a distance, it looks like, oh, man, Miss Austin, she's went one novel after the other. I mean, 1811, Sense and Sensibility comes out. Two years later, it's Pride and Prejudice. And a year later, it's Mansfield Park. A year later, it's Emma, which is right now. And it just looks like you're accomplishing so much during this time. But the reality is that you didn't start writing these books in Chun. These books, you started writing them many years ago. Is that correct? I did, absolutely. Both Sense and Sensibility, I began as Eleanor and Marianne when we lived in Steventon. Oh, Lord, how many years ago is that? Sometime in the 1790s, so it could be 20 years ago. And then Pride and Prejudice, I'd begun writing as first impressions. 
And I had been editing a bit on and off, but essentially I had been traveling around with these manuscripts on my writing desk. I had a terrible fright once. We were traveling from, I think it was from Steventon up to London one year during the season. And we'd stopped at a coaching inn to change horses. And I discovered that my writing desk, in which I locked all my manuscripts and my dressing case, had both accidentally been loaded onto another stagecoach that was going on from the inn where we were staying the night. And so I actually thought that my manuscripts might have disappeared forever. But luckily, someone at the inn sent a rider after the carriage, and they were able to reclaim my writing desk and my, my dressing table. But I had been... Yeah, I've been traveling around with these novels for a long time and thinking about them and rewriting them. So really, the first one that I wrote entirely in Chawton was Mansfield Park. And it's probably easy to tell that it's an older Jane who is writing that novel. It, I really was the, na- the age of about Marianne Dashwood when I wrote Sense and Sensibility and about the age of Elizabeth Bennet when I first began Pride and Prejudice. Whereas Mansfield Park, I'm coming to it Obviously, it's a much more mature woman. (laughs) Your writing desk, where it was loaded on another carriage, describe what your writing desk looks like. You said it was a small box. I mean, how big is it? It's quite small. I mean, it's about the size of a dressing case, I'd say. And it does have a little drawer in it you can lock to keep your manuscripts or paper or what have you. It's got a sloped part that can fold out. So you can fold it down and give yourself more space to write. And that bit's sort of covered in leather, so it's a better writing surface. And at the top, a little drawer flips up and I can keep my pens and ink and other little things up there. So it's really a lovely and very compact way to be able to write when you're traveling. And it does mean that, you know, wherever I go, I'm able to take my work with me, which makes a great difference, absolutely. But this is not, when I think of a desk, I think of a large desk that you sit behind in a chair, and this is actually a more or less a slanted box that you can pick up and take wherever you go. It is exactly, and I set it on the desk wherever I am. I did most of my writing, as I mentioned at Horton, I, I sit at the little round table in the parlour there. I also love to write when I'm at Henry's in London, because honestly, it's splendid. He goes off to the bank in the morning, and I'm alone in the house. It's only me and his one maidservant, and I have so much quiet to write. But wherever I go, I find a table on which I set up my little writing box, as you say. It's a better description of it, absolutely. It's amazing to me that those novels could have disappeared. They could have been sitting in that box and never to be seen again. Somebody could have said, what is this box, and just thrown it in the trash somewhere. That's incredible. It's quite terrible, although I must admit, I used to joke that my friend Martha Lloyd was not allowed to read First Impressions again, the first draft of Pride and Prejudice. I was known to accuse her of wanting to memorize it so that she could publish it from memory. (laughs) It's possible that some of my early books might have lived on in the memory of Martha and of Cassandra, but not in their entirety. You ask a lot of your friends, uh, do me a favor, would you please memorize this book for me? Thank you. That's a big ask. So what is is coming next? Do you have some novels that are coming after this? And also, do you hope to marry at some point? Or is it just, do you feel like it's just not in the cards for you? I think at this point, it's no longer something that's on the table. I did, after Tom, there was a young man I met during one of my family's summer holidays in Sidmouth. We used to go to the seaside while we lived in Bath in the summers because, as I mentioned, the hot weather is so dreadful in in Bath at the height of summer. When we used to go to either Sidmouth or Lyme or Weymouth for the summer, and there was one summer that I met this most charming young man. He was a young clergyman who was there visiting his brother who was a doctor in the town. And he's the first gentleman I've ever liked who Cassandra equally admired and thought might be worthy of me. And at the end of the summer, we did speak and... He had said that he would like to write to me and that he hoped that we would meet again the next summer wherever either of us were. 
But sadly, a few months after that conversation, I received a letter that he had died. He'd been drowned at sea. And I cannot deny that loss has also made me disinclined to ever after consider marriage to another. So I think that chapter of my life is closed. (laughs) Who knows what you're going to produce after this, and I'd hate for it to be interrupted. So uh, maybe that's just the best decision anyhow. As you said, you look to your children. And I am, as I mentioned, hard at work on the Elliots, which is a novel which will, you know, feature a naval captain as its hero and which will take place partly in Bath. I think it should be something quite new to what I've produced in the past. It has a more mature heroine. Anne Elliot is at that age that is the age of peril in all of my novels, 27. You may have noticed that Charlotte Lucas is 27 when she's frightened of being a burden on her parents and decides to marry Mr. Collins. Anne Elliot has also reached this very perilous age, and I want to look at... It's a more mature relationship and perhaps what happens when there are second chances. So I'm hard at work on this one. I'm searching for a new title. I know The Elliots is not the most captivating, but it's very descriptive for now. The Elliots are at the center of the book. And I may return at some point. I had started a novel called The Watsons when we first moved to Bath, and then I got distracted and set it aside. And I may return to it at some point, but honestly, the theme of The Watsons no longer so much interests me. The young lady who has a good fortune to be captivated by a lord, it's all, it seems a little bit predictable. So I'd rather try something new. Do you find that that is something you do frequently? You have an idea, you work on it for a little bit, and then you get bored with it or think, this isn't pushing the boundaries or whatever. Does that happen? Not too frequently. Mostly I rewrite. Once I've created characters, I do tend to get rather attached to them, and I keep worrying that one story until it's in a form that I think works really well which is why I've done so many revisions of both uh, Sense and Disability and Pride and Prejudice and even of Northanger Abbey. But the Watsons is one case where I did begin and then I just stopped. Otherwise, even my youthful stories, they were all very short, but they're all complete in and of themselves. So in general, I do like to see a story to its end, but I think I just, I tired of Emma and my heroine in the Watsons and I, I wanted to move on to something different, to move on to a heroine with a bit of a more mature view of the world. It's interesting that you talk about rewriting because every writer knows that by the time they get to the end of their book, it is their 300th draft. (laughs) No first draft (laughs) means anything. Indeed. (laughs) It's very true. (laughs) It is. So I just, I have to cut myself off. And the reason is because I'm never going to get bored of talking to you. You're such a fascinating person to speak with. And if it's okay, I'm just going to ask you a couple last questions and then just be thankful of your time and all this wonderful creative work that you've done. It's been wonderful. Oh, well, thank so you. You're very kind. <laughs> my, my first question is, and this might be a ridiculous question because this is something I have no knowledge of. But as I was reading about you, something that you wrote, I think it was maybe a small short story called Lady Susan. And I don't know anything about this, but the word right after what I was looking up said sexual predator. So <laughs> are, are those two? Am I talking about the same story? What can you say about that? You are indeed. So Lady Susan is another one I wrote when I was in my teenage years. And I wanted to take on a heroine who was the villain of the piece. And so I don't know that I would actually say that Susan Vernon's a a predator, but certainly she plays the game of courtship for herself and for her daughter very well, and she knows exactly what she's doing. And she's really great fun. I mean, I'm very fond of Lady Susan. But yes, I did a lot of experimentation when I was writing as a younger woman, and really, my stories when I was younger were much more wicked than my adult books. 
people were constantly getting drunk and falling down and having affairs and doing all sorts of horrible things. But it was sort of the world that I was seeing around me and, and I was laughing about it. And people have this idea that we're all very staid and elegant, but really not very much. I mean, our culture has been greatly affected by the liberation of the French Revolution and life is changing very rapidly. So, I mean, I have one story about the beautiful Cassandra I remember I wrote when I was probably 14 or 15. And Cassandra got some ices, I think, at a pastry cook shop, refused to pay for them, knocked the pastry cook down, and went home and refused to apologize. So certainly the stories I wrote when I was younger had heroines who were much more brash than those who have been criticized by the critics in my recent novels for being outspoken, I must say. That is fantastic. I love that. I love this. I love these different levels of wicked that you see in your writing. And the truth is, you're exactly right. That wickedness is underneath I mean, in, in, in everybody. We all have a little bit of wicked in us or wish that we were. And, in the most delightful way, of course. Uh, oh, always. Never with any malintent, for sure. Yeah. So, all right, let's see. One, two, two more questions. Mm. No, maybe just one more. I've taken up enough of your time. Quite all right. In Pride and Prejudice, this is the novel that has sold the most in our time. Mm. And it is a big number. And looking at that in hindsight, especially considered that you've rewritten it so many times, is there anything in it that you wish that you would have changed or done differently? That's an interesting question. I really don't think I would. I did rewrite it several times, and I think all of the changes helped. But I think of all of the ones I've created, it's the one about which I do tend to talk the most positively, and it's the one I think of which I'm the most proud. Certainly, it's a favorite amongst my family. It's a favorite both of Cassandra's and of my mother's. And really, yes, I think that's one. There are certainly things I might have changed in other books, but I don't think Pride and Prejudice is one that I really would alter. That made me think of two more quick questions. <laughs> I've got to ask these. What If you could describe the men of your time in a handful of words, how would you describe them? Oh, dear. <laughs> um, <laughs> Upright, outdoorsman, straightforward. I think at least for most of the men of my acquaintance, those are the words that come to mind at first. I know a lot of country clergymen and country gentlemen who really, their great cares in their life are for their dogs and their horses, and they're very content that way. Do you feel that there is a darkness inside of all men? I don't know that there's a darkness, but I don't necessarily think, with the exception of Mr. Bennett, that gentlemen have as good of a sense of humor as ladies. I think ladies have to be able to laugh about life, because if we didn't, we would be constantly fainting on the sofa, whereas gentlemen have a great deal to do and have a great deal of opportunities, so they're able to take things very seriously. But I really can't take very seriously that I get up every morning and I unlock the tea in the sugar cabinet. I mean, if I did, I would probably go mad. So, yes, I think there's a difference in the level of severity with which gentlemen view the world. Okay. And last, the advice that you might give other writers listening to this that have not published anything, is there any advice you'd want to give them? Well, what I was known to say to my young niece, Anna, who is an aspiring authoress herself, 
was that two or three families in a country village are the very thing to begin work on because you have a small group of people with whom you can play with those dynamics. But also that when in her novel she wanted to take a character to Ireland, I cautioned her very seriously that a character might go to Ireland, but since she, Anna, had never been there, she could not follow her. She could not write about this character in a place to which she had never travelled. That she really ought, as you said earlier, to be writing from her own experience. So I think that would be my greatest advice, is to observe the world around you and to write carefully and with a sense of humor about what you see. Excellent advice. Anything you'd like to add? Well, it's been a delight to talk with you, and I hope that some of my all-important nothings have proved useful. I promise you that people are going to love your all-important nothings when they listen to it this, because they ha it has been a joy speaking with you. Thank you for everything you've done, and thank you so much for your time. Oh, my great pleasure. Thank you so much for your kind words about my work. I'm delighted if it's afforded you some pleasure. When Jane talks about not marrying Harris Bigwither, you have to wonder if she knew that her books would be as important as they are. Was she willing to give up a life of security because she knew that her voice was the voice of women of her time? Yet, because she was surrounded with supportive family, she was able to follow her true passions and express what other women of her time couldn't or felt that they were not allowed to say. As she mentioned briefly, Jane started writing very young. When she was 11, she wrote what was called her Juvenilia, which was a collection of writings that she labeled Volume the First, Volume the Second, and Volume the Third. When she was 21, she began writing First Impressions, which became Pride and Prejudice, which was not published for another 17 years. It's amazing that she carried these writings with her in that little writing desk, and they were almost all lost that one day. By the way, that portable desk can be seen at the British Library in London. But probably my favorite statement in this whole discussion was when she clarified what women were looking for. Women were not necessarily looking for a rich husband. They were looking for a home, a place where they could feel safe and not live in fear. This theme was consistent in her books and in her life. You can hear the relief in her voice when she talks about her brother Edward giving them the home in Chawton, where she could live once again in peace and without fear. At which time, she went on a publishing spree that would delight her audience even today. Thank you for listening, and if you enjoyed this episode, subscribe now. I'm Tony Dean, and until next time, I'm history.